Johnny Cash once described country music as being made of emotions, of love, of breakup, of love and hate, and death and dying, mama, apple pie, and the whole thing. I'm Tennessean country music writer Cindy Watts. Welcome to Country Mile, the USA Today Network's new podcast series exploring the evolution of one of America's truest art forms through the stories of some of the genre's biggest names. I've said this for a long time. I think over there, when I play, I'm exotic. In the same way that when we're looking at, um, you know, Oasis or or Coldplay, they feel a little exotic to us. Just even though Coldplay's massive worldwide band now, but U2 feels exotic. We're looking at, oh, these Irishmen, you know, it's like they got such a cool thing and, you know... I love his accent when he talks and it just, it just feels, well, I think in my case, it's like here I stand in a cowboy hat in the middle of an arena in Norway, you know, and, um, I'm exotic. Now I, in America, I'm the farthest thing from exotic. I'm prototypical, not exotic, but over there I'm a Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Country Mile a podcast series brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network and Belmont University. Today, we have a special Thanksgiving episode with Brad Paisley. Brad has won three Grammys, 14 Academy of Country Music Awards, 14 Country Music Association Awards. He's a member of the Grand Ole Opry since 2001 and wrote 21 of his 24 number one hits. We met Brad at his guest house where we talked about the importance of giving back, his sold-out European tour, and his TV special, Brad Paisley Thinks He's Special, that will air 7 p.m. December 3rd on ABC. So let's start with the story about, about your kids. And Thanksgiving is the time when we really discovered the place that would be the uh, inspiration for the store. And it's a place in Santa Barbara called Unity Shop. We were spending Thanksgiving out there. My kids were little, uh, maybe maybe four and six years old or something like that. And they were acting spoiled. And my wife said, get in the car. We're going to volunteer somewhere. These kids need to understand that, you know, there are people that don't have what we have and there are hungry people in the world and I'm sick of their attitudes. And so she threw us all in the car and went to this place she'd heard about called Unity Shop. And it's a place where um, there's a lot of components to Unity Shop. They are a they're also not only a free grocery store, but they are a, they're also like a, there's a, a sort of a goodwill component with a storefront where they raise money that way. And uh, it's kind of a lot of different things rolled into one. But the, the idea of it that blew me away was the fact that it's this place where in, immediately my kids started to volunteer and, and we started going there all the time. Anytime we were in California, we would go stock shelves they what they love to do is bag beans and rice and put the barcodes on the bags and stock the shelves with it and it's kind of fun for a kid to sort of you know it's like stickers and all that and um got to the point where they there there's now an area of unity shop called huck and jasper's creative nook which which is like an area where kids go bag beans but um you walk through it it's a cute little grocery store and it's like you know here's a here's a rack with with loaves of bread, here's a, a bunch of peanut butter, here's vegetables, uh, 
and you see a mom and a kid, kids in the shopping cart walking through and, and, uh, Immediately, we said, this has got to be in Nashville. we got to do this in Nashville. And we have an incredible board of directors and um, people that are really, you know, community leaders that are working with me on this that I would not have gotten anywhere without. And they are all as passionate as we are. And it's been really neat to see this idea become sort of the passion project of about 12 different people um, on a daily basis. And... Uh, it's really, it, we're getting somewhere. And I think we are maybe two months away from opening the doors. Uh, the walls are up, the paint's on, the, the roof is on. Wow. How does that feel? Amazing. I walked through the refrigeration units the other day. It's sitting there. So it was a last Dr. Fisher at, at Belmont has some ideas for how to landscape. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been about a year because we talked about it last October. Yeah. And now you are... We're about to start feeding people. That's amazing. You know, I think that it's really a, it's really going to be interesting to see how it changes once people walk through the door. Because we've, it's all in theory right now, but we can figure this out. And I think that in the end, the minute a family walks through there, we all, we already have the mechanical horse that takes the quarters and it's free, but the, I think the, I think it's free. I forget whether we give them the quarter to put in it or not, but it is going to be crazy to see somebody walk through that door and push their kid in a shopping cart, pick out groceries, and then scan all the barcodes and never pay a dime and go home. And also the other thing that's been a lot of fun is figuring out the areas where they're going to be dealing with our professional representatives and Belmont's representatives. And, and immediately when somebody starts getting food there, the other end of the spectrum is, is we're working with them to get them back on their feet to where they don't need this. Greatest story we have from the other one from Unity Shop in Santa Barbara is a woman going through the program there was pushing a cart and she looked over and saw my kids volunteering and looked at Kim and said, oh, that's so amazing. My kids did that when they were little like their age. And now she was, she had fallen on hard times and needed it. And so there she was utilizing it. When I think about everything that you've given to country music, <laughs> no, don't laugh, don't laugh. But when I think about everything that you've given to country music, I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> but to be in like to be in the car with my daughter and say you want to help and I know somebody who could give you that opportunity and to that help that means a lot is the greatest gift. I feel like it is an important, you know, a lot of times we think what we do is important in country music and then we step back and realize well some of those things aren't. I mean, it's just entertainment. Sometimes that is an important thing for people. I do believe that people need what this town makes uh in a big way in their lives. But to be able to do something that, that, um, is on another level of, of, uh, what you would consider just a good thing is really nice. And it feels good to, feels good to be able to do this. And it's only, you know, it's not all me. I, I'm, again, I've got a lot of people helping with this and a lot of, we have a lot of, we have a ways to go to make it all work exactly right. But, um, it'll be cool if it works. So, Two months, so January is yeah. what you're thinking? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's our plan. 
So then one of my favorite parts, thing we talked about last year was you told me about the toy section yeah. at Christmas. Is that yeah. still part of the plan? Yeah, not this year. We, well, no, we just aren't ready. Year. But yeah. yes, next year, I would, yeah, that's our plan. Because that's what they do at Unity Shop. And that's what we discovered when we went the first time for Thanksgiving. There they were preparing to open the doors for the toy store. And they said, it's just family after family, kids filing through, picking out the toys that they need. Um, making a wish list, and it's all brand new things, and there's choice. And the the key to this store of ours and, and all of the, this idea is the dignity that comes with that because there's, um, there's no dignity in, in getting sort of – in needing a handout, somebody gives you that handout, and it's not what you wanted at all, and it's almost something that you wouldn't even ever eat or don't, and don't want. And then the kid feels a certain way, and you wouldn't want that if you can avoid it. You know, one of the things that they said in at Unity Shop out there was that one of the ideas, the woman named Barbara out there that's um, – been there forever and she she's in her 80s and she's a saint santa barbara must be named after her actually mm-hmm. um and she but she said one of the ideas she had for this concept was that she was at a soup kitchen once and saw saw a guy sitting there eating and he'd come through a couple of different days and and he was eating his mashed potatoes and his turkey and there was an entire plate of peas and the same thing the next day, an entire thing of peas. And she's, he was like, I don't like peas. And they still stuck peas on his plate, which is just like, and she was like, well, there, we could, that's just not efficient. We could figure that out. And same with like, they realized out and out there, you know, what's the thing you're always left with in Thanksgiving that you really don't eat other times of the year? Well, one of those would be, Cranberry sauce, right? Um, Cans of cranberry sauce. Well, she said, you know, we ended up, she said, we would end up with like shelves of cranberry sauce. I mean, she said, we got to stock the whole store with cranberry sauce because like all of the supermarkets would just give you that because they always end up with too much. She said, but we have a very large Hispanic population that uses, utilizes the the, uh, Unity Shop out there. And that's not a part of the recipes for most Mexican dishes or Hispanic food. And it's like, so here we had a shelf full of that and no one wanted it. And, uh, and so it's, it's like, let's think about this for a second. And that's what we're trying to do is like, we'll, we'll make sure that we're lucky. We have a great partner with second harvest food bank who is so great in Nashville and, um, Janie Day, who ran it for many, many years, is on our board, and, and we're all working together to make sure that what we have is what people want. Very cool. So you got back stateside just in time for the holidays. Yeah. But you just spent a very long time. I, I wrote it down because the numbers are crazy. Eight countries in 12 days, 13,815 miles, arena touring Europe which people don't do in country music except Brad Paisley. Well, they're starting to. Um, I am really, I just really love, I'm really thrilled that I'm able to go do that. I love playing over there. There is something so interesting about the, um, 
the idea that this music that is so, uh, I guess, America centric in country music, it's so we are we are we are not um, uh, of sort of vague ethereal format of music where you know it's open to interpretation all that often. Most of what we do in country music is a very specific thing, and we talk about the things we know. We even talk about our lifestyle stuff. We talk about what we drink, what we eat, where we go, what we do in our free time. Um, even the the most hardcore love song usually mentions a location or a place in America that's very unique. I mean, we don't even speak the same way. We call them bars. They call them pubs. You know, uh, it's bangers and mash in here. That'd be mashed potatoes and, I guess, sausage or something. And, you know, so the fact that I get to go over there and perform what I do and have them eat it up is really fun because I, I've said this for a long time. I think over there when I play, I'm exotic. In the same way that when we're looking at... Um, you know, Oasis or, uh, or Coldplay, they feel a little exotic to us. Just even though Coldplay's massive worldwide band now, but U2 feels exotic. We're looking at, oh, these Irishmen, you know, it's like they got such a cool thing. And, you know, I love his accent when he talks and it just, it just feels, well, I think in my case, it's like here I stand in a cowboy hat in the middle of an arena in Norway, you know, and, um, I'm exotic. Now, I, in America, I'm the farthest thing from exotic. I'm prototypical, not exotic. But over there, I'm a Ferrari. <laughs> so how long have you been touring in Europe now? Like, how many times have you uh, been? Well, we, we first went over in, like, the year 2000, um, and we opened for Reba. And, um, that, but that was a whole different way of doing it because I was an opening act. They loved her. Uh, they didn't know who I was yet, and it was a brutal three-day uh, experience. It was longer than that, but it was three three shows in in the UK, and uh, it was it was something. I mean, it was like you know flying coach in the back of the plane with my entire crew on you know and changing you know changing like like basically it was it was the UK via Atlanta via. You know what I mean? Like with a stopover in Germany on your way. <laughs> it, was, it was a long couple of days and it was what it was. I mean, I was like, let's do this. And then by the time jet lag, I, you know, I didn't plan where I wasn't there long enough, early enough to acclimate. We got there too late and we played. None of us could barely keep our eyes open. And and by the time that I left, um, I just, you know, I, just, I remember saying to my manager at the time, I have no business trying to do this yet. Nobody knows who the hell I am in America. Why am I over here? Let's, let's do well here. And then someday maybe I'll come back, but I have no interest in it at this point. I don't have the energy. And, um, and then went away and years later, I don't even know what year it would have been middle two thousands. We get an offer to do a festival in Norway that was lucrative and like, oh, that makes sense. And I said to my promoter, um, I said, you know, I would love to do England. 
I'm a really big fan of British music. Heck, some of the best country guitarists of all time, any guitarists of all time are British. I mean, Ray Flack, Albert Lee, you know, Eric Clapton. It's just, I would, I would love to, I would love to go do that. And they said, well, there's not really much of a market for that. And it's, it's, it's really tough. So it'll be fun for you. You know, you'll play to a half empty little club, but I said, I don't care. I'll do that. Hey, if there's 25 guys that like my guitar playing, that'll be worth it. Well, we put it on sale, this small place called Shepherd's Bush, and it sold out immediately. And we, everybody was sort of shocked. And so they said, well, there's an open day before it. We could add another show. I said, do it. Sold that out. They said we could have sold out the week if we we had wanted. And, this, and I think it held 2,000 people. And so something was going on that nobody expected. And that was that I think nobody had really tried in country music to do this all that much, especially a young artist, you know. And and so when that happened, we started to realize, oh, we were thinking the way we used to think, which was they don't have your album, they don't have radio, they can't find your music. And that was the case in the 80s and 90s. You know, they just didn't have access. I remember when I first went over with Reba, I think we packaged the greatest hits and I had none. We sent like my album over and did like a, did like a, here's what I do kind of thing. And, you know, and it was a special European product or something. And, um, and then in this case, it was like, we forgot to realize that the world had changed. The internet was here. YouTube was already out. Oh, they have heard of me. They've found it, you know, and uh, knew they knew the words to everything I sang. Like I, I tried things at Shepherd's Bush that first time. I did Long Sermon, which is track one of album one. It was an album cut, sang every word to me, and it's sort of an interesting thing. It's like oh, when they're country fans over there, they're not inundated by it. They're not sort of spoiled with having too many choices in terms of concerts to go to. And so they devour it and know every word. Eight to 10,000 people a night on average. So what were they, what were they singing along with? That's a good question. Um, everything. They, they really know everything. Um, even album cuts. So the people that, that go to a concert in the UK or somewhere like that, are huge fans to buy that ticket. I mean, you, you know, I've always wondered anyway why we're able to get people to buy tickets anywhere. I mean, the idea of the idea of you need a babysitter, you need a car, you you need parking, there's going to be this expense, that expense, it's got to line up with your schedule. You got to drive probably 20, 30 minutes to wherever we're at. I've never understood the logistics of the miracle of thousands of people showing up for anything in a coordinated way, but especially in Europe. And um, it's really neat um, to know that they are that big a fan. They just, I mean, that's the thing. Once you got them there, they knew every word. If they were willing to take the leap. Did you play First Cousin? No. No, I don't. No, I didn't do that. Like I, that, did, I don't think I ever played that once over there. Just um, there were funny things that I would do. Like in in London, I did an entire 
thing where I try to rewrite a couple of songs with British colloquialisms. Um, like Letter to Me, I was like in the middle of that going, what's high school over here called? And I think they call it secondary or something. Um, maybe. That, seem, that seems right. I don't know. But it was like, they do not call it high school. I said, do you guys even know what I mean when I say high school? They're like, yeah, but like that's, it's not college over there either. It's university. And um, so I wouldn't be in the middle of a song over there and kind of jokingly change the words to, you know, pub instead of bar or whatever. I need an example. Um, uh, oh, you got so much going for you, going right. But I know at 17, it's hard to see past Friday night. Um, tonight's the bonfire rally. And then I would stop and say, do you even know what a bonfire rally is? And they're like, not really. It's like, <laughs> do you do that over here? And I would like ask a person nearby and they're like shaking their head. I'm like, okay. Um, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, you know, I would read, I would change some of the words into something else. I don't remember what I did though. I love that. And we never looked back. We just kept going. I just kept going back and back and back. And every time we would go, there would be more people. So I think what's unique too about the way that you tour Europe is that you don't just pick one country. It's like this last tour, you were in eight. And a lot of people like will just play Ireland or they will just play England, but you did right. So many, yeah, couple for the first time, which was ridiculously fun. And um, and it's interesting because for a while I used to say, okay, it won't work somewhere where they don't speak English as the primary language because there's just too many specifics in country music that they won't get. Like my sense of humor will not translate in a place where they can't understand the words and you know a song like I'm gonna miss her is that still funny in German I, I don't know and so we but we did try a few this time like we went to Germany and they don't speak the amount of English in Germany at all that they do in a place like obviously England but uh, like even Norway and Sweden where they learn English um, Norway and Sweden they speak better English than you and I do you know mostly but um, I think that um what I found is that when you when you invest in these places, like I said, there's a there's an exotic nature to it. It's like, oh, we should go see this guy. I've heard about him. And they go, and then they like the music for... If they don't understand the words, they like it for other reasons. And most of the time, they sort of do their homework, and they figure out what it means. And they understand that a song like Mud on the Tires... Come on now, what do you say? Girl, I can hardly wait to get a little mud on the tire. Is an off-road four-wheel drive thing, and I don't think they do that in Germany like we do here at all. I don't think four-wheel drive is a big deal over there. Maybe all-wheel drive and an Audi, but it's not the same thing that we're talking about. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, it's fun to, it's fun to, see the, 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 I guess, cross-pollination of all this. But logistically, how do you make that work? It's like you were talking about how hard it was the first time you went with Reba, well, like now, like how do you... Well, when you, when you sell, um, it all comes, when you sell a bunch of tickets, you can, you can uh, afford to do it right. You can afford, 
like this time around when we went, it was pretty wild. They have gotten the memo over there a little bit that tour buses are a really good way to travel. And we were able to get some tour buses. And I think we had a couple of buses and a couple of trucks carrying around the set and doing things the right way. And, um, yeah, you, you can do it. And I think every gig except, except maybe, no, I think every gig that, you know, every gig except Ireland had, uh, the trucks and buses there. And I think even the trucks went to Ireland. Um, like I think they went through the channel to get to England when we were done over in, you know, with Germany and Norway and all that. Did you like ship your stuff or did you rent stuff when you were there? Like your stage stuff? Like both. We shipped over all of my guitars and stuff and, and amps were shipped over. I have a second rig of guitar stuff that goes over. That's not this, not all the same stuff that I use in America, but the guitars are the same, but we shipped some, we held back, but I, I shipped what I needed over. Uh, and then it tours around and then it comes back here and it takes, I think it takes another week or two to get back after we do. Um, but that's all part of it too. Like, I think that's important. There's a lot of guys as a guitar player. That's a, that's a large part of my appeal. I think in some of these countries is they really like that musicianship. And so they want to see the guitars they see me play and they want to, they want to see, you know, certain, certain songs I'm known for certain guitars and, and whatever. And I want to make sure I'm not over there just playing a bunch of things that they're not used to seeing. They want to see the real thing. Like, they want to, I even had some guitarists that I've gotten to know over there that showed up and they wanted to play through some stuff and hear what I hear what my amps sound like and all that. One of them was Keith Urban. <laughs> I showed Keith a couple of things I'm doing. So, I'm kidding. I'm, he, that, you talk about a fun night. That was crazy. It was so cool what he did. Because he, I think he managed to play with Darius and with you. He did. And guess how he did it. So here's how it all came about. So yeah, so for those listening, um, at, at the finale of my show at the O2 in London, uh, I started the encore and said, please welcome Keith Urban. They couldn't believe it. They were like, what? And so Keith had gone over to announce his own show coming up next spring. And he had done a TV show. And I talked to him that morning and texted him and said, I hear you're in London, um, and I'm sure you're busy, but if you're not, come come hang out and play a song. And he said, well, I just talked to Darius. And I said, well, I talked to Darius, too. He's coming over. The problem was with Darius, he you know, it's one of my best friends in the world. Darius was, like, going on at 9 o'clock, and I texted him that morning. I said, what time do you play? He said, 9. I said, he said, what about you? I said, 9. I said, how long do you play? He said, two hours. I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'll see you afterwards. So we were going to get together after the show, but we weren't going to be able to sit in with one another, which is bad planning. But in Keith's case, he said, oh, I just talked to Darius. He said, I said, well, Darius should get dibs. He talked to you first. And he said, maybe I can do both. He said, let me look at the distance. And then he ended up texting me back, said, I've got it figured out. I'm going to hope. He said, I'm going to hop on the tube. And I'm going to play with Darius in the first, like, five minutes of his show. And I'm going to hop on the tube, and I think he'll be there before, you're, before the end of your show. And I said, you're kidding. Okay, great. So his guitar text came and set his guitar rig up in the afternoon. He did that very thing. He got on the tube and read, read it, wrote it over to the O2. Wow. It was so much fun. I think he had a ball doing that, I'm too. sure he did. 
I'm sure he did. I got a press release about it as soon as he was off that stage. That's like, good. Yeah. Somebody's doing their job. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, Probably his people doing their job. <laughs> oh, no, no. Like, it, it's your people were completely on top of that. They were. Like, I was How getting about that? blown up. I'm that shocked. No, completely shocked. You have the best people. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> the best people. Um, I think it's important to point out that you talked about playing 2,000 seat or 2,000, I guess, seat bars to begin with. A lot of our biggest stars now still can't even do that. But the size of venues that you played on this tour was how big? This last uh, tour. That's a good question for someone else. It, it looked, you know, it depends. Like certain cities have certain other things. I think there were, I, I could be wrong. I don't know what it was in London, maybe 15,000 in London. Yeah. But like the, I think the the size in, in uh, like Norway, their big their big arena in Norway was about eight, maybe nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what Germany was. Um, we... We did a really good job somehow of going into the size buildings we needed to be in because there weren't any seats left. And some places were bigger than others. I think in some cases, like we were a little conservative with with Berlin because I had never played Berlin. So we played a a venue that wasn't quite as big as it maybe could have been, but so what? We'll go back and maybe we'll play a bigger place next time if there is one. I don't know. It doesn't matter. In the end, it's about the excitement of getting there and feeling like they know the words and they love the music and you want to play for all these people that are so rabid. And you'll do it again. Uh Uh-huh. I'm already looking ahead to it. And I take my whole family along, and we've done that the last two times, and my kids get to see, like we did as a family, we did nine countries. Um, I did 13 countries. Goodness gracious. Throughout the course of it. And, uh, before we came back and, uh, cause there were two, two or three countries they didn't go to with me. Um, and anyway, and then by the time you come home, my kids saw the Eiffel Tower this time and they got to stand in front of the Mona Lisa and look at that thing and Michelangelo's David and, um, it's a big deal. I mean, I didn't do that. I, they're way more cultured and enlightened than I ever was at that age. Well, they have a dad who's making the most of the opportunities. That's for sure. I definitely am doing that. This podcast is brought to you by The Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University, where students can study music and music business in the heart of Music City. Or they can choose from more than 95 other fields of study. To learn more, visit belmont.edu. We hope you are enjoying our Country Mile podcast. Don't miss your all-access pass to country music news with the Tennessean's mobile app. Download the Tennessean app for free in the App Store or Google Play Store. So, in December, you're going to be in living rooms across this country. Maybe at least for a, a minute or two before they change the channel. We're, we're going to hope for an hour, including commercial breaks. Great. Yes, an hour including commercial work. So kind of introduce Brad Paisley thinks he's special to us. About a year and a half ago, I sat down with Sony television people and then then ABC after talking about it and said the same thing, which was 
because they had said, what would you put on television if you could? And I said, I think TV needs, look, we're New York and LA are well represented on television at all times. So is Atlanta and Chicago a lot, but here's Nashville that we had our show for a while that was fiction, but did a good job of making this a place that seemed enticing. But here we are, one of the media, music, art capitals of the world. And and why isn't there a show that takes place, you know, from downtown Nashville that shows how cool the town is, how great the music is, the personalities and the sense of humor of some of these folks? I can host it and we'll we'll make the most of an hour of TV. And ABC shockingly said, we love it. Let's do it. And I was like, wait, what? Now we have to do this? <laughs> and um, they really have been an incredible partner throughout this. I am so thrilled with the fact that they have trusted me throughout in ways that they didn't need to. I've never done this. So to be able to go and and do what was my vision is incredibly fulfilling. And the vision being, I said, you know, the way I see it is I would take some of my songs and I would create little segments that have to do with, um, with them. You know, like I would expand upon mud on the tires in a fun way. I would have a letter to me segment where I would have other celebrities that sort of explain what they would tell their younger selves. I would have a segment about country music where I write songs with the audience, kind of like Mac Davis used to do. Um, then I would maybe do some fun thing with collaborations with either a new artist in country music or a pop band or, um, you know, and then what, how cool would it be to run down the street to Tootsie's and play a song there and show Nashville as you do it and take off running and, all that, um, you know, uh, and that is what this is. It's like the, the entire, the entire vision of it. it, it it's interesting. Uh, uh, Holly Jacobs, who is the head of unscripted Sony television, who's a partner in this. We had a meeting last spring and it was, who would we get if we could? And, uh, you know, these names were thrown out, Carrie, Peyton, the Jonas Brothers, my friends, you know, Darius, Kelsey Ballerini, um, Tim McGraw. I'd get these guys involved if they'll do it. And I'll ask them. I don't know if they'll say yes. But they all said yes and showed up for me. And more than that, I think in the end, what I'm really proud of is they come off great. And I said this to somebody earlier. They said, what's it like? I said, well, it's kind of like a roast of me. At times, I'm, I'm more comfortable with that than trying to be built up. Um, but it's also a thing where I kind of prove that if anybody's special, it's all of them and our town. Like, I think Nashville comes off great in this show. It's a chamber of commerce uh, marketing tool, if, if you want, <laughs> which we need because we don't have enough people or growth or traffic <laughs> or traffic traffic in Nashville anymore. And you know, um, I said this too, you know, that moment when the lights go out and they're chanting your name and it's that, that rock star moment. There's about five seconds of that in this show before my bubble is burst. 
which is so much fun, which is, you know, it's not, you just, you'll see this show and it'll feel like a rock concert for 10 seconds. And then it's like, oh, I get it. He's making fun of himself. And that's kind of the point. And the title of the show was, it was the, when he, one of the producers, David Wilde and, and a longtime writer friend of mine, who's a collaborative, uh, second creative force on this with me, David, um, we, we didn't know what to call it. We had this idea for a long time. We, we wrestled with titles with my name in it, titles that weren't, titles that had, you know, like this special like thing. And it's like, what do you call a TV special like this where I'm, you know, doing these things, but we're having fun and it's meant to be not taken too seriously. And he threw out, Brad Paisley thinks he's special. And I loved it. I didn't think ABC would go for it. And they loved it. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. It led to us, it led to us really thinking about how you, how you portray that. Like it, it led to the, the sort of bits that we do. And in keeping with that, everything is turned on its ear where like I, like I end up bearing the brunt of something and being upstaged at, in every segment. For instance, I set out to take Carrie out of her comfort zone and she ends up taking me way out of mine. And do you want to say what you were doing with Carrie? Yeah. So uh, the original idea was to go, go driving around in a truck and go mudding with her and do an interview a la, you know, carpool karaoke or something. And, you know, I would drive her around and, and I would be all cool and, and it ends up turning, it's turned on a dime and she proves a couple of things. And one is that she's way more redneck than you thought. <laughs> and the second thing she proves is that she should not have a license <laughs> and she's danger to, she's a menace to society. Um, but again, I, I look, you know, I, I'm way out of my comfort zone by the end of that bit and in a great way, she scares me to death. Um, same with, um, heck, I mean, you know, same with like the, the stuff I do with, uh, with the Jonas brothers and the skit that we do. And, um, you know, I, that goes so horribly wrong and it was planned that way where I look foolish by the end of that skit. And the only other person in the whole show that takes a little bit of a, of a ribbing is Nick Jonas, which is great. He's a great sport. Um, I mean, even the, there's a song, there's a new song I do with a, uh, with an amazing young woman named Addie Pratt, who's a St. Jude survivor. And it's a new song that I had written. And we, you know, one of the things I said was let's do, if I'm going to give, be given an hour of television, I want to do one good thing with it. And so I'm a spokesperson for St. Jude and had this idea and wrote this song that deals with what it's like to be alive and the best parts of being alive in 2019. And, um, I think when you look at, you know, the best example of what humanity is capable of in a positive sense is St. Jude. I mean, that's, that's our crowning achievement as a species at this point is we've created a place that's so well done that cures children. My goodness. And no one ever pays a dime and all that. Um, and this girl named Addie, who is an incredible singer, 
is such an inspiring story of success from there. Uh, total survivor. She's now enrolled at, in college and she's, uh, it's just great what's happening with her. And so I, I wanted to prove the point of the song by having her perform a few lines of it from the perspective of somebody who really is happy to be alive. And when she does, I expected sort of a touching moment. I didn't expect Beyonce, which is <laughs> what I got. Yeah. And uh, she's amazing. And But even, even in keeping with the show, here again is a situation where I have this new song and I'm upstaged. <laughs> I think that though you're talking about all the people you ask saying yes, and I think it goes back to your to your heart and reputation. They trust you. You know, they trust you to I hope be you're right. funny I, and make them look good. I hope that's right. Now I know I know Darius trusts me that way, and so does Peyton in that sense, because they they're both, you know, and so does Carrie. I mean, she's been through it with me enough, and she also has Carrie's been always willing to sort of say, don't do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, they do. And, but it's really nice when people that I don't do that with all that often, like the Jonas Brothers or Kelsey, um, you know, and, and Tim. Well, I've done enough with Tim to know that, you know, he's got a better sense of humor than me. And um, But that, that level of trust is nice. And it's essential if you're going to do something like this and attempt to go on television and entertain everybody. you got to check your ego at the door and really be willing to go out there on that television and put it to them and say, look, you know, we are here to entertain you. And that's, I think from the minute the show starts, you feel that. And you were super involved. Like you didn't just walk in the door. No, really involved with everything. And you have to be, I mean, my name's on it. I'm not going to get another chance to get that right. You know? Yeah. So you walk off stage that night cause we filmed it in Nashville at war Memorial. Mm-hmm. You walk off stage. How did you feel? I felt great because I felt like thinking like an editor, which I learned how to do video editing a long time ago when I was sort of needing to get some things edited and didn't have time. Um, thinking like an editor the entire night, I knew we had everything we needed to make it great on television, which is a different thing than than a total... Like there was a lot of moments of waiting on the setup in the taping that you wouldn't do on a TV show, but... It was taped live. I mean, we played these songs live in order and you saw it all happen. You know, I ran down that street, played with Darius and he walks back in the door and the place went insane, didn't it? And they didn't mm-hmm. expect him to come back. No. And, uh, and it was really thrilling to see everything work. And I knew that everything had worked to the degree that we had what we needed. Um, and it, so I felt very... I felt very, very proud of what we had done. And it's always about the team, too. Like, as I look around, there's David Wilde, who I have worked with for over a decade or longer, who I adore. And he's about in tears, as is uh, Jane Moon and Rack Clark, who produced this thing. And I'm looking at them, and they're just, like, hugging me, saying, you know, everything worked. It all worked. This is, And then we had an after party, and all talked about, you know, what it meant to be able to do this. And, you know, it's just great to feel like you're part of a team that accomplished something. Because this is a team thing. You don't do a TV show by yourself. You know, I like team things. It's fun. Is there a takeaway from the show? Like people people watch 
like you're in their living room for an hour. Like, what do you hope when it's over? What do you I hope, hope when, when it's over, they say, I could watch that all over again. I think they'll feel that way. I also think that they're going to want, there'll be parts of it that you're going to want to watch five times. I think you're going to want to watch Carrie and her bit five times. I think you're going to want to watch what I do with the Jonas Brothers a bunch. I think same with Darius. I think Kelsey's performance is crazy great in a way you don't expect in that, you know, one thing I'm really proud of is I had called these people and unlike an award show where you have a lot of politics involved and, um, there are four losers per award (laughs) born every act. There are, um, you know, record labels really pushing a single or uh, needing it to look a certain way, or this is our goal for the night. In this case, I called each of the artists and I said simply, what would you do on here if you could? And they said, I said, it's up to you. What do you want to sing? Darius said, let's do only want to be with you. And Hootie and the Blowfish, there they are at Tootsie's. And that's pretty mind blowing. Um, Kelsey was like, well, you know what? My song, Miss Me More, I stripped that down and do it different on the Opry, and it's a lot of fun, and it's really cool, and I've never done it on TV like that. That'd be neat. So I ended up having Dan Tominski come sit in that night and play um, play and back her up and me up, and we did this grassy version of Kelsey's song that you've never heard before. It's really cool. It comes off really cool. And then, um, you know, like the Jonas Brothers, they said, we haven't done Love Bug in a while. And, you know, you kind of inspired that in some way. So we should do that. We'll sing it. We'll talk in the middle. And we'll kind of goof with the audience a little bit. How did you inspire Love Bug? They said that um, around the time they were writing that kind of stuff, they had they had gotten into some of what I was doing. And they liked love songs and were interested in sort of a quirky love song. And... Um, I guess it, in some way it was them channeling something about what I do. We, we jokingly, jokingly, I, in the middle of that, say it had to be ticks, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a really great time to be in Nashville. And I think that this show, another aspect of it is you see, you see from the minute it starts that this, I mean, there's a life in this city right now that, that comes off from the second this show starts and you'll, you'll sense that. And, and, um, I mean, you even did the pedal tavern. Oh, right. I forgot about that part. That's another one where I get upended. I, you know, I'm, I'm on this pedal tavern driving up and down. I jokingly in the monologue called a bachelorette barf wagon. And, you know, this has become, bachelorette capital of the world. And, uh, so we, you know, we go cruising up and down Broadway on one of those and it's a, it's a crazy experience, especially when you have Chris Harrison standing there with roses ready to hop on. And when it comes to the world of bachelors and bachelorettes, that's the Pope, you know, and he, he jumps on there and it's a really fun segment. Um, you know, we shine a light on that aspect of our nightlife in town and um, the, the the fun of being in Music City in, in this time. And I think, uh, I think I'm really excited about the, the idea that um, I can contribute to Nashville's traffic problem. 
<laughs> there are lots of things about your creativity that I treasure and enjoy, but you being responsible for upping Nashville's traffic is not one of them. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I really, I really wish there could be a disclaimer at the beginning of the show that just says we're full. Stay home. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But other than that, the problem is, is it is a really cool place to go. And, you know, I think that, uh, it's going to be fun to see what people think. I I just hope everybody, I've, I've shown this to a few friends. I showed it to a friend of mine last night that had never seen it. He's not in the music business. He's just a really good friend. And I played it beginning to end. Um, and he laughed everywhere he needed to and was flipped out by it, which is fun to think that it can have the effect I want it to have on people if, if they see this, because, um, music should transcend just a song. And we're living in a day and time where media and, and, uh, social media and everything, it's, we're just inundated. So it's hard to break through and entertain people. And I just love entertaining people. And I think we might've found a way to do that. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Country Mile. This podcast series is produced by the USA Today Network's Erica Whitney and John Garcia. And I'm your host, Cindy Watts. Theme music from KillerTracks.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. For more in-depth coverage of country music, visit Tennessean.com backslash Country Mile.